0: Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we last saw Jesus and his disciples, they were in a house in Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in the beginning of chapter 10, they leave that place and continue making their way south in the direction of Jerusalem. And they come down the coast of the Sea of Galilee, cross over the Jordan River, and enter the region of Judea. And all during this journey... Crowds of people flock to Jesus, leaving their homes and their villages whenever they catch wind that Jesus, the teacher, the healer, the one that everyone has been whispering about, is close by. And all the way, Jesus teaches the people while walking, while sitting outside the home where he and the disciples are staying. For hours and hours, the people come to Jesus with their questions, and he responds, more often than not, with answers that aren't exactly what the people anticipated. Case in point, the young man in our story. Or at least he's a young man in Matthew's telling of this event. Luke tells us that the man is a ruler, likely a a ruler of the synagogue or a member of the Sanhedrin, someone who carries religious authority. But he's not a pompous religious ruler, as we sometimes characterize the Pharisees as in their continual quest to stump or trip up Jesus. This man is earnest in his religious practice and study. And he recognizes that Jesus is a great religious man. Jesus is about to hit the road again to keep moving towards Jerusalem when this man runs up to him and kneels in front of him. Good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in the Old Testament and subsequent Jewish teaching and practice, only God was referred to as good which Jesus reminds this man in his response. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And on first reading, that's a little problematic for us, right? Because, hey, Jesus, in case you forgot, you are God. But remember that Jesus is in a context where the people haven't yet recognized him for who he is. They think he's a great teacher or a rabbi or a healer or a prophet. And even those who think him to be the Messiah think that that just means that he's a a great man sent, appointed by God, not that he is God himself. So when this man calls Jesus good, it isn't because he thinks that Jesus is God, But he thinks that somehow Jesus has achieved the kind of goodness that one associates with God. Clearly, Jesus has been blessed by God, blessed with power and knowledge. And the young man wants in on the secret of Jesus' success. From one well-respected religious authority to another... How can I achieve that same blessedness from God? The kind of blessedness that would assure me of eternal life. And at first, Jesus responds quite directly to the man's question. He asked what he must do, and so Jesus tells him what to do. He is to keep the commandments. He's to live a life of obedience and righteousness. And again, this reads somewhat problematically for us Reformed folk, right? What about by grace alone, through faith alone? But Jesus never denies the importance of the law, of the obedient life. God has called his people to live righteously according to his word for centuries. And so this is where Jesus starts. And this is apparently exactly what the man wants to hear because he jumps to his feet exclaiming, well, great, I have kept all of these commandments since I was a child. Now, I probably would have raised my eyebrow in some skepticism at that claim. (laughs) Maybe this man is a little pompous after all. But Jesus sees this man, sees his Desire to do what is necessary, sees his earnestness and loves him. And in love, invites this man to take his relationship to a deeper place, invites him to take one more step towards God. There is still one thing you lack, Jesus says to the man. Go. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And therein lies the rub. Because this guy, he isn't just middle class or moderately wealthy, this guy has great wealth. The hangings around his bed are woven from the richest velvet and embroidered with gold thread. His floors are brightly colored tile mosaics. He's got a lush garden in the back dotted with koi ponds. He has a a household staff of 20 bookkeepers and beekeepers and housekeepers. He holds lavish banquets for his friends and for visiting dignitaries and for the other staff at the synagogue. He lives a very lush, comfortable existence. An existence that, according to Jewish tradition, is further evidence that he is a man blessed by God, a holy man rewarded for his holiness. And he has gotten quite used to this existence and doesn't want to give it up. So when Jesus tells him to sell everything, and give to the poor, his face crumples. And he turns away. He doesn't take that step towards deeper relationship with Jesus. He turns back to the relationship he has with all his stuff. Jesus, ever the teacher, Turns to his disciples and says, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is indeed easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom. And this baffles the disciples. Because as we've just said, Jewish tradition had long taught that material wealth and success was a sign of spiritual reward. Wealth was a sign that God looked favorably upon you. And not only that, but having wealth set you up to curry even more favor with God. If you were rich, you could donate to charity, you could give to the poor, you could set up an endowment fund for the local synagogue, you could accomplish all sorts of good works that would further establish your reputation with your neighbor and with God. So the idea that the rich would, not, would have a hard time entering the kingdom of God is inconceivable. Because if the rich can't enter the kingdom of God, who can? And of course, this is exactly Jesus' point. That we cannot save ourselves. If it were only up to us, entering the kingdom would be impossible. It doesn't matter if we try our hardest at keeping all of the commandments. It doesn't matter if we have more gold in our bank account than the king of France. We cannot achieve entrance based on merit points or dollar signs. We can only enter the kingdom of God because of the grace of God. So all that matters is our total dependence on God. And this is what the rich young man lacks. He has so much wealth, status, authority, and a clean bill of religious health. But all of that has led him to a place of self-security. And it's hard... In this place, to totally surrender your life, every inch of your life to God, to sacrifice everything out of love for Jesus, to follow Jesus, no matter where that journey leads. In verse 20, the man tells Jesus that he has kept all of the commandments since he was a boy. Last week, we noted that children in the ancient Near East had no rights, no status, had very little agency. Parents were fully responsible for the actions of their kids. But at the age of 12 or 13, a child became responsible for his or her actions, for knowing the law and for keeping the law. And so the man tells Jesus that he has done that successfully. I have left infancy behind, he says. I have grown up. I have become a man. See what I have accomplished and achieved. If only this rich young man had been on the scene just a little earlier. Because just before this encounter, we see people bringing their children to Jesus to receive a blessing The disciples, in line with the children should not be seen or heard, modus operandi, they try to shoo them away. But Jesus reaches out and pulls the children into his arms and says, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Our rich young man is so desperate to show that he has left childhood behind. But Jesus says a child is exactly who you should be. Because children don't have their own supports their own accomplishments, their own resources to fall back on. They are in control of their life. A a little child totally depends on someone else for food and for warmth and for shelter and for love and to lead them through life in a way that brings flourishing. And this is what total surrender looks like. This is the kind of surrender that Jesus invites the rich young man into and invites all of us into. A life surrendered to God. A life dependent on God. And not just a little bit dependent. Jesus doesn't tell the man to just give away some of his wealth to live with a moderate amount of wealth so he can have a moderate amount of faith. He tells him to sell it all. CRC pastor Leonard Vanderzee writes, entering the kingdom of God is not a moderate, sensible thing. It is a radical new way of life that demands our all. Following Jesus always calls for some radical divestment. which, if you are like me, is a rather daunting prospect. Surrendering everything, giving up everything, holding everything we have in life loosely, I am not good at that. I'm pretty bad at it, actually. I think most of us rely on a whole lot in life. We hold a lot of things pretty tightly to give us a sense of security, to feed our vanities, to shape our sense of worth, to reassure us that we are, in fact, successful successful in work, successful in family life, successful in faith. When confronted by the call to submit ourselves totally to Jesus, all too often we turn away and walk back towards the other stuff in our life that holds our love and claims our allegiance. So when faced with this radical invitation, we too wonder with the disciples who can be saved Confronted by Jesus' description of the righteous life, a life of obedience and surrender, how obvious is our own disobedience? Which is kind of the point. The Heidelberg Catechism question answer three asks, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. John Calvin expands this in his writings on God's law. He says that the law functions in three ways. And the first way is that it reflects to us both the perfect righteousness of God and our own sinfulness and shortcomings. The law makes us aware of what we should do and thus aware of what we do not do. And so, says Augustine, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it, to know how to ask the help of grace. Because the answer to the question, who then can be saved, is the one whom God saves. With man, this is impossible, Jesus says, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The good news of the kingdom of God, says Vander Zee, is that the very God who demands our all is the God whose love waits patiently while we struggle to get the point. God calls us to be all in with His kingdom. Because he is all in with us. God does not turn away from us. Even when we turn away from him. He is there waiting for us with open arms. With a grace that says you have a place here. A place you could never earn. But which I give you nonetheless. Surrender your life to me not to prove your piety, but because you already belong to me, body and soul, in life and in death. And this, says question and answer one, is the answer to the young man's question. This is how we come to know eternal life. Because we belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures us of eternal life and makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So, dear friends of Jesus Christ, do you trust that you belong to Jesus? Do you believe that God's grace is sufficient for you? that there is nothing you have to do to earn your salvation or prove that you belong in God's kingdom? Does the knowledge of your sin lead you not to a place of despair, but a place of wholehearted surrender to the loving arms of Jesus? And as we seek To live in grateful surrender? What do we need to step away from in order to step towards Jesus? What do we cling to too tightly? Is it our wealth? Or our reputation? Or our relationships? Our coping mechanisms? our pride? What do we need to let go of so we can fully receive the love of Jesus? Because his love is all that we need. It is total. It is all-encompassing. It is never-ending. And it is freely given. So as we close, I invite you to stand if you are able and to profess with me that which we have already sung today, these words of calling, these words of comfort from the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one. I'll read the question if you would respond with the answer. People of God, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death, Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Amen. <laughs>